The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. There's almost nothing in this huge report produced at massive public expense about the collateral damage of lockdown itself. You know, with Parkinson's, what's supposed to slow you down and hold you back, I found is actually speeding up and propelling me forwards. Tell you what, the reason we were so quick onto this, there's going to be a new winter of discontent, we're going to go back to the early 70s, is because we want to go back to the early 70s. Say what you like about James Bond Halligan. He hasn't got a cervix, has he? One. We have Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So we've had our first official report into the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic co-pilots. Britain must learn from big mistakes made by ministers. That's the conclusion of the House of Commons Health and Science Select Committees in this joint report. MPs praise the UK's vaccine rollout, and rightly so, but they're scathing when it comes to the protective ring Matt Hancock says he threw around care homes, given that care homes were flooded with elderly patients shifted out of hospitals and in some cases unfortunately carrying COVID. And now Matt Hancock's own protective ring has been breached and he's no longer health secretary. That vital conclusion, which will surely also be central to the upcoming public inquiry into the COVID pandemic, has for now attracted less political controversy than it might. The overwhelming conclusion of this report, though, Alison, the government should have locked down earlier, harder, firmer. Given that, there's little in the way of nuance. Little to suggest there may have been a better way of dealing with a virus that overwhelmingly affects people aged 70 plus with pre-existing medical conditions such as voluntary, full-supported, age-based segregation as opposed to full lockdown with all the related damage that brings. That important debate, Alison, according to this report at least, appears to be closed. I think before we dig down into the nitty gritty co-pilot, we just must acknowledge the fact that as of this week, Matt Hancock has been given a job as UN special envoy in Africa, having determinedly tried to jab every living being in the United Kingdom before giving vaccines to developing countries. He's clearly the ideal man for that job. Having become expert in what Fleet Street used to euphemistically called Ugandan affairs. <laughs> He's now back in the circle of the Prime Minister's love. Let's not even go there. Yeah, I mean, this report, 145 mainly very damning pages. As you said, the headlines were all Britain must learn from big mistakes. There were some good points, Liam. As you said, the absolute catastrophe of discharging elderly patients from hospitals into care homes without checking to see if they had COVID first. The report said that thousands of deaths could have been avoided. Also mentions the lack of infection in care homes, but doesn't mention the truly appalling infection control in hospitals. On Planet Normal, we know, Liam, from George, don't we, that hospital infections have led to about 20% of cases in the UK epidemic. Absolutely shameful. And I hope that's something that a forthcoming public inquiry will really expose. But I suppose the big conclusion, the big stick to beat the government with is that the government should have locked down earlier than it did. And, And the report quite extensively quotes our old friend, Professor Neil Ferguson, who said that the initial UK policy was to take a gradual approach to introducing non-pharmaceutical interventions and that that this comprehensive lockdown, as we remember, wasn't ordered until March the 23rd, 2020. And Ferguson says it was a deliberate policy proposed by official scientific advisers and adopted by the government. And he said to the committees, It's now clear that this was the wrong policy and that it led to a higher initial death toll than would have resulted from a more emphatic early policy. And quite astonishingly, it seems to me, Neil Ferguson told the committees that if the national lockdown had been instituted even a week earlier, we would have reduced the final death toll by at least a half. And what strikes me, co-pilot, is the report swallows this claim. And it takes at face value the reasonable worst case scenarios that these different modellers came up with in March. 
suggesting that if the government continued to follow Plan A, which was this country's pandemic preparedness strategy, try saying that with your false teeth, pandemic (laughs) preparedness strategy, if they continued to follow the plan that had always been in place, the NHS would be overwhelmed many times. And Matt Hancock gave evidence to them, pointing to a prediction of slightly below 820,000 deaths in the absence of a lockdown. And I'm going to ask you, co-pilot, given how madly out SAGE's recent estimates have been, how much should these committees have taken these claims at first value? They criticised the government for not challenging the scientific advice they were given. I would say that the committees have not challenged the evidence that they've been given. I think that's right. I think were Matt Hancock still health secretary, were Dominic Cummings still in number 10, the conclusions of this report would have been absolutely forensically homed in on by political journalists trying to decide who out of those two former adversaries were correct. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that if you look now in retrospect um, at the estimates of the likes of Imperial College about the hospitalizations we were going to be enduring now, they were just wildly, comically over-exaggerated. In fact, the modelling that comes out of this with most credit under most metrics is actually Warwick University. The estimates are much more moderate, but even they are, you know, were significant overestimates as well. So I think what the Imperial College mob are trying to do is say, you know, if you'd have listened to us, fewer people would have died. They're saying that in retrospect, and the MPs are just basically absorbing that and taking that as read. There's not much analysis in this report. There's lots of reporting of what the various evidence providers, people who gave testimony, written and spoken, said. But there's no analysis of that testimony that I found in the 145 pages, or at least very, very little. But the big disappointment to me, Alison, and I hope this isn't repeated in the public inquiry, and if it is, I think it would be a major mistake, is that those conducting the analysis, those holding the inquiry, and almost all journalists responding to the conclusions of the inquiry, I do think this is a bit of a kind of dry run for the public inquiry. It's two select committees of the House of Commons, one of them chaired by a former health secretary. It's pretty serious stuff. But no one on either committee seemed to have the sort of intellectual creativity or grit or determination to question the whole premise of what most of the committee witnesses were saying, which is more lockdown always is a better thing. There's almost nothing in this huge report produced at massive public expense about the collateral damage of lockdown itself and putting that up against the collateral damage of COVID. And you have to have that debate. If you're not having that debate, when people like Macmillan Cancer Care are screaming about the huge increase in cancer cases and fatalities, unfortunately, tragically coming down the track because of the lack of NHS services available for non-COVID during that pandemic period. When you've got people like Mind talking about the huge impact in terms of mental health of lockdown on people, school kids, you know, middle-aged families trying to make a living, older people made incredibly lonely by lockdown. Unless you're having this debate, assessing the impacts of lockdown compared to the counterfactual, compared to a more age-segregated, dare we say it, Great Barrington Declaration-style approach, backed by the likes of Shinetra Gupta, John Yanides, Jai Bhattacharya, some of the world's leading epidemiologists. This was the way we always said we would do it until about a month before the pandemic. This is what the World Health Organization said we should be doing, a more age-stratified approach where you help older people, infirm people, people with pre-existing medical conditions to lockdown if they want to, fully supported, voluntary, age-segregated lockdown. Meanwhile, the rest of us get on with our lives, keep the economy running, keep the health service running for stuff that isn't related to whatever virus it is that we're trying to cope with. Because there will be now, it's almost baked into our culture, there will be more social media driven, massive overreactions to 
certain viruses that emerge, there will be more people screaming for more lockdowns going forward. And I think, with the best will in the world, rational observers, people with public platforms, scientists, economists, sociologists, the whole gamut, we need to be part of a debate that assesses lockdown, not just accuses the government always and everywhere of not locking down soon enough. There's nothing of that in this report. No, that's completely right. And I, I think it was actually really interesting, Liam, reading bits of it, because, of course, it took you back. I mean, it yeah. feel, feels like 100 years ago now, of course, but it's not that long ago. And really reading the early stuff and looking at an interview, actually, with Sir Patrick Valance, what, what was very interesting is they had no intention of locking down. Even Neil Ferguson was never thinking about stopping people going to work. So I think what happened is that the measures were being introduced across the continent the public was getting more and more scared. The media was pushing and pushing. When are we going to introduce, you know, harsh measures? And I think in the end, the government took a political decision. I, I don't happen to blame them because I think if you're being given these absolutely outlandish and horrifying predictions of 820,000 of your citizens dead, what on earth are you going to do? What on earth is Boris going to do? I'm quite sure he was minded to avoid lockdown as long as he could. You know, Liam, I was remembering that someone who's been a great friend to Planet Normal, Charlie Robinson, he's been Velma's scientific sidekick, really, during the pandemic. And I asked Charlie in March 2020, will lockdown work? And he said, it won't save lives, it will postpone deaths. I always remember this phrase because I really struggle to understand it with my art brain. He said, the area under the curve will remain roughly the same. Now, I think it's very difficult, Liam, if you're a government, to sell to the public the notion that staying indoors ultimately won't work, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel right. People think, well, if we stay indoors, if we stop doing things, we'll be safe. But actually, the fact is, is that it's pretty much going to work out as bad or as good as it always was. And I think you're right. What we're saying about this report, we'll talk about the authors in a minute, is that there is this striking failure to analyse any sort of cost-benefit, weighing up any of the kind of disadvantages of lockdown. It's a complete given that this was what we should have done, but we should have done it earlier. Now, the authors praise the government for at no point running out of ICU beds in the NHS. The NHS was not overwhelmed as health systems were in Italy. But if we think, Liam, as you said, about the prioritising the NHS and COVID patients at the expense of all the other patients, was that now the right decision? And there is a new study just out by University College London. You ready for this? It says that at least 20% more deaths in the next 12 months in people newly diagnosed with cancer. Now, your maths is much better than mine, co-pilot, but 450 people on average every single day die of cancer. And that's going to be increased, according to University College London, by 20%. Every day, another 90 people dying who may not have died had we not locked down. And these will be younger people. You know, let's be brutal. Yeah. These won't be people towards the end of their lives. They'll be young mums with breast cancer leaving kids. Yeah. Not orphaned, because hopefully they'll have another parent around. But how tragic is that? And that's the kind of cost-benefit analysis that you say isn't happening. At least it isn't happening in the media and our political class. There are good analysts doing this stuff at places like UCL, at places like Bristol University, by the way, at places like Edinburgh University, at places like Warwick University. There are health specialists who are doing these difficult, almost kind of morbid sums. Yeah. But you have to do these sums because it's called grown-up analysis, which leads to grown-up policy. And yet our media class and political class, they seem incapable of this kind of nuance and it's barely a nuance it's like two columns like pluses and minuses and that's why i am so disappointed about this report because there are some really good people on both those select committees and i do think mps some of them anyway try hard to get their minds around these complex issues 
And I think somewhere between the testimony that was given, much of which was very interesting and was nuanced, and the writing of this report and the dissemination of this report, a lot of key detail and debate has been lost. And can we just point out, Liam, that one of the main authors of the report is Jeremy Hunt, who, lest we forget, was the Secretary of State for Health for almost six years. Now, Jeremy Hunt was uh, theoretically in charge of making sure there was enough PPE in the cupboard when a pandemic came, and there wasn't. But Jeremy seems to be far keener to be pointing towards the fact that the government should have been following the Asian countries than acknowledging his own part in the fact that we weren't very prepared. And I kind of quite object to him positioning himself as the sort of slightly rueful elder statesman pointing out how rubbish Boris, who defeated him, let's remember, in the Conservative Party leadership, I can definitely see Jeremy Hunt limbering up for another leadership bid by blackening the name of the man who beat him. Oh, you're so cynical. (laughs) I'm I'm sure there's nothing in it. As if. I'm sure Jeremy Hunt's failure to remember he was the health secretary for six years. It's entirely coincidental. <laughs> entirely coincidental. But they're pointing towards East Asia, South Asia, how marvellous they were because they all locked down very early. If you look, Liam, those countries did well at the beginning and then subsequently they didn't do so well. So all the cases kind of shot up again. So, yeah, I am a bit suspicious. I am disappointed in the report, which, as you say, I think has some very sound findings, but also these huge gaps. And I really hope that as a country we're able to have a proper grown-up balanced analysis of what happened and to weigh the deaths and the damage to other citizens who weren't victims of COVID. There are other victims in the pandemic beside the COVID victims. But I did want to move on, Alison, because I wanted to congratulate you, us, Planet Normal, and above all, our listeners, because this is going out on Thursday, the 14th of October, and we're expecting on Thursday an announcement by Health Secretary Sadiq Javid basically saying to GPs, Guys, girls, you've got to do more face-to-face appointments. A lot of media organisations have claimed credit for this shift, but I think, objectively, you in particular, our listeners, Planet Normal, was very, very early onto this story that GPs weren't seeing people enough face-to-face. And now it seems finally, though his rhetoric that I've seen so far has been pretty limp, the Health Secretary is finally saying to some GPs, some GPs, by no means the majority, the majority have done a cracking job, but some GPs who are still foot dragging about seeing people face to face are now to possibly face some kind of financial sanctions unless they go along with this new government guidance. Well, I hope we have played a small part, Liam. As you know, I've been (laughs) a bit punch and judy with some of the medical unions. I've been reported to the... They love you. (laughs) Oh, no. She's gone into one again. Oh, no, oh, no. Here she is with what they call her anecdotes, you know. Yeah, her anecdotes. People's wives dying at home because they haven't been able to get a scan, that kind of anecdote. People who have appeared on Planet Normal going public after, you know, years of relatively low-key lives just taking the huge step of going onto a national newspaper's podcast to air their grief and anger anecdotes yeah a big cheer for the lovely nick stokes who, who talked to us about his beloved wife joy who fell foul of not being seen seeing a gp and whose gp did come round to the house to apologize so didn't pretend that they'd been fully open which is what the medical unions have been claiming but claire who's one of our gp supporters and informants has been saying liam for many weeks not her now, real name not her real name but claire's been telling us that the real problem in their surgery where the surgery practice manager was saying no you can't see more patients face to face was that they needed to scrap the social distancing in the waiting rooms in order to see more patients. So Sajid Javid has now said that the social distancing requirement will be scrapped, which is good news because they won't be able to have that excuse. They're also 
going to relax the cr- the cleaning regime between each appointment, which has slowed everything down. And also, I think a lot of people will be very relieved to hear this. Before going into hospital for an operation, there won't be a PCR test or quarantine before surgery. Now, all of these things added together have made it very hard. And I think that there has been legitimate public anger. We've seen the Telegraph, we've seen the Daily Mail really reflecting immense reader unhappiness, which has been made even worse by being told that they're making it up, which, as we know, thousands and thousands of people have expressed their distress at being unable to access primary care. So let's hope that this announcement now will push them into a situation where they absolutely have no alternative but to see patients in person. Chapeau to you, Alison, and our listeners, and to Planet Normal. Chapeau to The Telegraph, and indeed to The Mail as well. Yeah, talk about tipping our hats, Halligan. I'm going to salute the co-pilot this week because I've done something very, very unusual. Do you want to know what I've done? Go on. I read the Halligan brain-tastic column on energy in the Sunday Telegraph. I mean, you know, (laughs) the lengths I will go to for this podcast. (laughs) So very quickly, I'm going to tell you what I've learned because I was intrigued by the background to this punch up between Kwasi Kwarteng and Rishi Sunak. And in no particular order, my learned co-pilot told me that during the Tory party conference, the price of oil went over $80 a barrel, up 30% since mid-August. Wholesale gas prices surging, reaching 400% per therm, 10 times higher than the average over 400p per therm. 400p. Oh, sorry, 400p per therm. I knew I'd get it wrong. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? No, I don't. absolutely no idea. What I I do know, listen, listen. So price cap on consumer utility bills, which I do know something about because I do pay those. Absolutely. in 2019 rose by £139 earlier this month, bringing the average energy bill to £1,277 a year. And that cap, you said in your column, will be reset in the spring. And unless wholesale prices fall drastically, household bills will soar further. And you even said that the average energy cost could reach £2,000 in April. Uh, Absolutely staggering 75% rise in six months. So are we going to be reading Halligan's economic agenda by the dim light of a guttering candle? (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to be brushing our teeth by candlelight, Alison? Are we going to go to a three-day week Back to the early yeah. 70s. Are we? You'll be bopping around in your school shoes and your national health glasses. Yeah, and I'll yeah. be in I'll be in my little shorts with a pea shooter. <laughs> Donny Osmond posters on the wall. In fact, dim light of a guttering candle pretty much describes your co-pilot's knowledge of economic affairs. <laughs> I tell you what, Alison, the reason we were so quick onto this, there's going to be a new winter of discontent. We're going to go back to the early 70s. It's because we want to go back to the early 70s. Yeah. I think that's because we, we were basically at the peak of our powers, weren't we, in the early 70s? We were. Oh, my God. Slade. What's not to like? 10cc. <laughs> it's going to be fabulous, isn't it? And the thing about the early 70s, Alison, back in the early 70s, you could still tell yourself you just about had a chance with David Cassidy. I did. I met <laughs> David Cassidy. Listener, I nearly married him. <laughs> it begins with a miracle treatment. These treatments were seen as a wonder drug to benefit all of us. Young lives injected with hope. This is going to transform your life. But the treatment's tainted. It contains a fatal poison. I came down with an illness where I basically passed out at work. And it starts to infect the very people it's meant to help. And then the damage began. Damage so far-reaching, it becomes one of the biggest medical disasters in history. Certainly hard to believe they sold all this product knowing it was infected. Join me as I trace it from the veins of innocent people back to a notorious American prison in The Telegraph's latest podcast. It's Bed of Lies Series 2 with me, Cara McGugan. A true story of greed, betrayal and deception. And it ends with a death sentence. In essence, they put money over life. Search Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this.
In 2015, a high-flying salesman at a blue-chip company was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He was 35 years old. Such devastating, life-changing news at such a young age would crush many of us. But this young man, after losing his job and being sent to the job centre, decided he was going to start a business. Well, six years on, that business is flying, employing hundreds of people and growing fast. What's more, that business pays good wages, well above the average for the sector, and specialises in helping mums return to work after they've had kids. I've interviewed many people, Alison, and many business leaders in particular, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who's responded to such a devastating blow by creating a business from scratch, creating wealth and jobs as a form of defiance, of therapy, of salvation, if you like. Have a listen, co-pilot, to my conversation with Mr. Luke Murphitt. Luke, great to have you on Planet Normal. Tell us about the diagnosis you got, when you got it, and how you responded. Okay, hello. I was diagnosed when I was 34 with Parkinson's disease, and uh, I was doing well in business in terms of uh, working for a big bank in London. And then I guess what happened was the company that I was with, the bank, after about a month and a half, released me. So I went to work for myself for a competitive bank. And then I found myself, after about a year and a half, being sent to the um, job centre. That would really crush a lot of people, Luke. With all respect, your mid-30s is very, very early to get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. How did you respond to that diagnosis after you ended up effectively looking for work despite your huge qualifications and your very significant professional success up to that point? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, my response to it was, I'm better than this, and I can actually give something back, and I can I can contribute. And so my response was, I was sent to Job Centre, I was found myself in Bromley Job Centre queuing up, um, and uh, yeah, I went in, I went into the Job Centre and said, I want to start a company. I said, I want to employ the people downstairs, and I looked out across to London, pointing to Canary Wharf area, and I said, I want to clean the towers. They said, are you sure? And I said, with my business plan, yes, and my determination. Within nine months, I was actually cleaning seven towers. So tell us about the business, Integrity Cleaning. You hire cleaning workers, but you have a very enlightened employment policy. And I must say, you've generated a really good reputation for your company. When did the company start and what size is it now? Okay, so we started three and a half years ago, early part of 2018. The company, we've gone on to grow, as I say, within nine months, we were cleaning several towers in Canary Wharf. Um, and we've since helped probably around 170 mothers back into work. Part of my business model was to help mothers back into work. That's the way we work. So, Luke, tell us about your your business. Some people would say cleaning is a really tough sector. It's not glamorous. People are often working outside of office hours by definition. How have you found building this business, the people you've met, and how do you incentivize your your workers? Yeah, okay. So it's it, cleaning definitely is a dirty business, <laughs> but it's, it's also one that I knew looking at the business model and the industry is something I could really have an impact in because it's often an industry that people, well, people don't choose to be cleaners, and yet there are 730,000 cleaners in the UK. There's 33,000 cleaning companies. I recognise that it was lacking respect, and the big keyword was integrity, hence the name. So what I decided to do was, rather than look for clients, I wanted to find uh, people who would work for me. Um, and standing in my daughter's playground, I found nine mothers who wanted work. I said, if I find you at work, would you want to work for me? And said, yes. So that's the way we went. Mothers back to work, treating them well, paying them well, above average, not treating them as cleaners, but treating them as people and giving them the opportunity to really have that self-respect and use my company as a stepping stone to achieve the things they wanted to do. That's a wonderful approach, Luke, and your company does have a reputation for paying workers well. Do you think that there are enough workers in the UK. Sometimes people say, oh, we need um, to bring in people from overseas uh, to do various jobs that British people won't do. But I guess your experience is that if you pay people well and you treat people well, you can find the workers to do these jobs. 
Yeah, most certainly. If you pay the least amount, then what are you saying about the people that are working for you? What do you want back? So we've automatically decided to pay people well above the minimum wage. Obviously, we expect great work back. The whole thing of helping mothers and families and so on is to be, be there to, so that they can help themselves, not overwork them, give them flexibility if they need that to be able to be there for the families and also to ensure they can earn enough. And consequently, although we pay more, we actually earn more and get much larger jobs and projects. And also our clients actually love it too because they feel like they're giving something back. And how did you fare during lockdown with your business, Luke? Did the business ever have a moment where you thought it wouldn't survive or how did it go? Well, at the point of uh, going into lockdown, we were cleaning the shard and we had some other uh, large projects as well. Everything obviously went to zero straight away because of lockdown total. So I did the opposite of what other people were doing. And I spent 16 hours a day preparing to reshape my business so that as soon as we came out, we were ready to go all guns blazing. Lo and behold, when we were allowed back out, we, we landed um, about seven construction sites where we could actually provide virus cleaning and also construction cleaning to help them prepare for their clients. So we ended up actually uh, doubling our turnover in 2020 from the previous year, even though the previous year was, you know, a huge success. That's absolutely phenomenal. I think a lot of people listening, Luke, will be blown away by what you've done. You've had a really serious diagnosis, and yet you've managed to find within yourself some real grit and determination, but also a lot of altruism. Where does that come from, that combination of characteristics that you've demonstrated after what is such a huge blow of being diagnosed with Parkinson's in your mid-30s? I think it comes from several places. It comes from having great family support in life. It comes from being competitive, support and so forth. It comes from having a lovely wife and children. It comes from having a faith as a Christian. I believe there's more to life than just bad news sort of doesn't have the same effect. Because, um, and it comes from... Obviously, the, the challenge that I have every morning, which is with Parkinson's, it's not just about the uh, the tremors and the slowness and things that it gives you during the day, but also the challenges in the morning. You know, I wake up in a lot of pain. Um, I feel like I've been in a car crash. My teeth are stuck to my lips. Fingers are curled and I can't move or express the pain. So I have to go through a bit of a process in the morning to break through that. And I have to unbend my fingers. I have to fight with the duvet to get it off me. <laughs> and uh, maybe my ear is folded because I've moved for some time. Uh, you know, those things. So those um, 15 minutes from my bed to my bedroom door, when I get to my feet, the first thing I do is I lift up my arms, which is difficult, and I say, thank you, God, for the day. Let me use it for the best of my ability. And then I work my way towards my bedroom door. Seven steps are really difficult, but each one gets a little bit easier. And what well, I've won a national award, but to be honest, Every time I reach my bedroom door, I felt like I've won a national award every morning. Then I can walk to the shard, ask them for the business, and that's easy. You have indeed been recognised as Entrepreneur of the Year, and that's a huge achievement to have doubled the turnover of your business during lockdown, Luke. We met recently, didn't we? And I must say, please don't take this the wrong way, you do move quite well. You, you're clearly very determined to maintain all your physical faculties and so on. And from where I was standing and from what I've seen, you do a damn good job. But we did meet at lunchtime, didn't we? So you're saying it's much, much more difficult for you in the first few moments, the first half an hour of the day, if you like, after you've been asleep. Yeah, once I've been asleep all through the night, you know, your muscles tense up and things and the sheer fact that you're not... Um... You know, you breathe through your mouth and things, it dries up like leather. So there are all those challenges. There's di different times of the day, it can be a bit of a challenge. And, uh, you know, later on in the afternoon, there's this moment where I can't move my feet. I literally cannot move or turn around. Sometimes I'm typing a text message, I can't pull my fingers off my screen. Um, so there's all those challenges. You end up deleting things you don't mean to and having to rewrite them. That morning that I saw you, it took me probably about 10, almost 15 minutes to put my socks on. And yet what I don't want to do is turn up to a meeting and get pity and all this, you know, let people know about it. The main thing is I'm there and I was wearing a suit. I don't dress disabled. I don't act disabled. The only grief I get is when I park in a disabled bay and people look at me and think, should you be there? 
I must say, I find your story incredibly powerful, Luke, and I'm sure many listeners feel the same way. Tell us your vision for integrity cleaning. How big can this business get? How far can you go? You seem to me to want to change the culture of cleaning companies, many of which don't pay an above average wage, many of which pay absolutely the minimum wage and no more. Yeah. Well, the advice I was given by several cleaning and company owners when I started doing my research was just pay the minimum and get away with. I ignored that advice. I pay as much as I can, I get away with. So, but obviously, we, we draw in some big contracts, you know. We, we, we do the likes of Amazon, we've done Tesco's, Amazon Distribution Center, that's a new one. How do you get those? I think it's because it draws great people around you, it draws um, a respect. It means your clients want to pay on time because they feel like they're actually helping you to pay them. It causes you to negotiate easier, you know, when we're doing um, prospecting and things and quotes. They feel like they know that, that you're going to pay them and, and treat your people better. So there's so many benefits actually from actually treating people well. And, you know, I, I make sure we're quite hands-on. I, I meet every new cleaner um, and I go up to them and say, hi, my name's Luke. I go to shake the hand and say, you're not a cleaner. You are, you know, and I say their name. And uh, they look at me and say, God, you're the first person who's ever said that to me. Because so often these, these people are not treated like people. They're treated like commodities. They're treated like... Um, just turn up in the evening when no one can see you, you know, but with us, we check great respect and make sure that people do see them and they get treated well. And, uh, you know, I'm quite happy for people to earn 12, 13, 14, 15 pounds an hour if we can. And uh, sure enough, you know, we get great results back. As I say, the last 12 months, we've delivered 30,000 hours of uh, construction cleaning, specialised cleaning for new buildings across London. It's shaking it up, you know, redefining the cleaning industry. So how big can we get? Well, I mean, it depends how many clients keep asking us, but uh, we certainly don't find that we lose clients once they come to us, whether it's for regular cleaning in their office or obviously what we specialise in, which is brand new buildings for construction sites. Luke, we've had a really um, distinguished roster of visitors to Planet Normal, Alison Pearson and I, during our 70 plus episodes. We've had cabinet ministers, we've had distinguished former heads of British intelligence, former Bank of England governors. We've had celebrity chefs, soul singers. We've had a few businessmen and women too, but never someone like you. So tell me, what does business mean to you? It seems to be more than just a way of making a living, just a way of generating wealth. It seems to me, Luke Murphy, that for you, business has been some kind of a salvation. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it's definitely, I love business. I enjoy it. You know, it's a great game. But I use it as a platform to potentially use my pain to help minimize other people's. And that may be financial, that may be respect, that may be giving them a future. You know, I, I've, like yourself, I know a lot of rich people and people who have not so much money. There isn't a lot of difference between the happiness and it's not related to money. So why would I spend my whole life trying to earn as much money as I can if that's not going to bring happiness? It may open some more doors and opportunities but so does being kind. And um, so, you know, with Parkinson's, what's supposed to slow you down and hold you back, I found is actually speeding me up and propelling me forwards. And I hopefully use that to, to bring respect to people in business and through keynote speaking and things. I can help deliver that message to other people. So hopefully that has a ripple effect to, be able to help businesses and business owners understand how you can actually use business to not just make profits, but also help create and shape lives and create stories for people to bring respect. I know you are a very successful keynote speaker, not least since winning Entrepreneur of, of, of the Year, and you absolutely ooze positivity. It's very, very inspiring, Luke. It's very infectious. So let me ask you this, if I may. You must have dark moments. You must have moments when, despite your business success, despite the wonderful family and friendships that you have around you, despite your faith, you must have moments where you feel that life has dealt you a pretty tough hand, given that diagnosis you sustained in your mid-30s. Um, well, one thing you won't hear me do is, is complain, because I'm actually grateful. You know, when you wake up in the morning and your fingers are cold, and then they straighten up. You know, you're grateful for that. When when you find your belt on your trousers, 
then I'm, I'm happy that it's saving five minutes from having to fiddle to try and put it on. I go to my toothpaste and it's facing the right way, so I can just grab it. I'm grateful for that. So when you're grateful for, for small things, um, <laughs> you're not looking for those big, those big things in life which are going to give you uh, some sort of happiness for a short period of time. Do I get down? <laughs> I mean, my faith is huge. You know, I go to the Bible and obviously read scriptures, which give me great, great help there. And I meet with Christians in, in church and things. But there's also good th- people in business too. And I've also found that when you've got a challenge like this, even the people that you think are going to be the most miserable, horrible people, when you get one-on-one and you, they recognise you've got a challenge, it brings that amazing empathy in them. And the kindness which perhaps they're brought up on by their parents comes out and I get to see the really lovely side of people. And you, I have great conversations. And sometimes it reminds us people that actually I am a decent person. I don't have to be nasty. I don't have to use bad words or, you know, tear into people. So I love seeing that change in people. And uh, that seems to have a bit of an effect wherever I go. So I feel grateful that I'm able to do that of people for, of all levels. So positivity is a big thing, but kindness and just respect and not judging and using, using my weakness and turn it into strength. Well, I'm, I must say, Luke, I'm sure many, many of our Planet Normal listeners are filled with inspiration from hearing about you, your your business, the success you're having, the positivity that you're exuding. So finally, let me ask you this. We do actually have lots of younger Planet Normal listeners too, lots of students, lots of young couples making their way in adult life. They write to us all the time. So what would you say to somebody who's thinking about starting a business but perhaps hasn't quite got the courage to do so? What's Luke Murphy's number one piece of advice for somebody who's dreaming of being their own boss? Simply put, it would be dream big, then wake up and chase them every day. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I have to say, co-pilot, that I was struggling not to cry while I was listening to your beautiful interview with Luke. It's not often you use the word beautiful, is it, in regard to an interview, but a shining example. I mean, that amazing bit where he said that when he was setting up the business, he was advised to pay the minimum you can get away with. And he said, I try to pay the maximum I can get away with. And cheers from all around the kingdom and from the planet normal universe on that. And also the fact that he talked about being kind. And it's wonderful, I think, to have such a positive interview. We've had some very gruelling interviews. And in theory, Luke's story, of course, has this tremendous poignancy of a young man being cut down in his prime. But he's turned that to such good effect And I also noticed the fact that he's a person of faith, of Christian faith. And I think that's very important. And I'm glad to see someone in public life speaking out about their faith and and also the goodness it inspires them to do. I got quite emotionally involved while I was interviewing. I think you heard me at the end and I was moved again listening to the interview with you as we're recording now. But we must always, Alison, keep interviewing those, in quotes, more regular people, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Absolutely. And listening to Luke talking about giving mums a chance, women who really welcome the chance to earn a wage to help pay for family life. And I think he's reflecting, Liam, actually, what one of the great lessons as we come out of the pandemic is all these people who are underrated in national life, aren't they? The cleaners and the delivery drivers and the bin men, all of those people have been great stars, I think, during the pandemic. I think there was a statistic the other day, you know, we all talk a lot, don't we, about working from home. But I think it's only something like 26% of the workforce has been able to work from home. So that's a largely middle or upper middle class thing. But 100% of the media. (laughs) Yes. But the people that, that Luke talked about, and obviously, as he described to you, they were coming out of the pandemic, weren't they, raring to go. And I hope that 
moving forward, we'll see this as an object lesson in that people who do some of those jobs do deserve a proper wage. And isn't that happening a bit, Liam? I mean, we're seeing actually that employment figures are are very strong, aren't they? You and I wondered whether we'd see this huge unemployment as furlough ended. Do you think we might still see the unemployment figures go up? Or do you think we've had a rather remarkable boom in employment? Well, I think The labour market figures are strong because the economy is rebounding, though the latest GDP figures were pretty underwhelming, but the workforce itself has shrunk. So we've got a very high share of people in work, but the workforce itself is smaller because people have left the workforce and also some people have left and returned to other countries. They may come back, but we don't know. We also don't know how many of the one, one and a half million people who left the furlough scheme just a few weeks ago, where they will fall in the other employment numbers, where they will they get full-time jobs back or whether they'll become employed. But we just don't know. But talking about unemployment, Alison, Daniel Craig is about to be unemployed (laughs) as James Bond, isn't he? I mean, I'm sure he'll get other gigs. But I know you went to see No Time to Die and I went to see No Time to Die. We do want to do a bit more culture on Planet Normal though James Bond is hardly culture, but it is rip-snorting entertainment. What did you think of the movie? Well, he is culture. He is British culture, isn't he, Bond? I mean, I did think it was, in a way, there was this beautiful irony, wasn't there? Because seeing that how many people end up seeing No Time to Die, you know, the future of cinema actually rests on James Bond's rippling naked shoulders. I mean, 007's had to perform some staggering feats in his life, but the single-handed rescue of cinema is is quite a tall order. Look, um, I must confess that I live with a complete sort of Bond archivist, as you know, Liam. You live with probably the world's leading film critic. Let's be clear about this. Anthony Lane is the New Yorker's film critic. Yeah. And that is hugely influential in Hollywood. Well, famously, his mother went into labour when they were watching, I think it was Dr. No in the scene when Ursula Andress comes out of the sea with the conch. So basically, he knows everything about every Bond film, including sort of registration numbers of a particular Aston Martin. So I get dragged along in his wake. Daniel Craig was set the task, wasn't he, of making a James Bond for the 21st century. Now, you and I could argue about whether... James Bond is capable of being a modern male. I'm not entirely convinced that he is. I think he's obviously going to be a retrograde masculine character. You can't see him loading the dishwasher, can you? No. Well, I mean, nappy changing Bond wouldn't be James Bond. (laughs) Imagine, you know, James Bond makes an Ikea changing table. He's in the Aston Martin and there's a sort of, you know, of the walnut dashboard, there's a sort of stick on nappy bag dispenser it doesn't exactly work does it no i mean we go basically we get mums and dads go to the cinema to see him to get away from that look i thought that the villain in this film was rubbish i didn't like the ending we're not going to give away the ending to listeners who haven't seen it there was an amazing classic sequence set in cuba where bond and this rookie spy paloma played by the amazing anna de armas wearing this black dress held up by will power alone. I mean, quite amazing. Absolutely. Gravity defying. Gravity (laughs) defying. Beautiful, funny, witty, screwball comedy with kind of pump action shotguns. And that was, for me, was worth the price of admission alone. And I think, Liam, just looking at the economics of it, No Time to Die took £83 million internationally on its opening weekend. So James Bond hopefully does seem to have saved cinema and will have inspired a lot of us who've just been got used to watching, you know, bite-sized Netflix chunks every night to go back to cinema. What did you think? One good thing about the film is that it feels shorter than it is. It's like two and three quarter hours, but it it flies by. It is, you know, honest to goodness, sugar-coated, candy floss entertainment. It is a good laugh some great action scenes, some good characters. I thought the villain was quite convincing, not as convincing as like Odd Job or no, Jaws, no, no. but still pretty good. And obviously it had all the classic bonds, the huge soaring score, the incredible locations. It left the sort of gnawing sense in your stomach that if you're a bit more successful, you too could have had that kind of life with those <laughs> cars and that figure and all the rest of it. <laughs> 
Not for us jobbing journalists, Alison. I've seen you on your motorbike, Halligan, you know. <laughs> Talking of motorbikes, I thought there was a touch of the Steve McQueen in yeah. The Great Escape when Daniel Craig was there on his high-powered scrambler, a bit of free running as well as he leapt between buildings. But in the end, I, for me, it was it was too corny to be a real Bond movie. Of course, we're now well beyond the original Ian Fleming mm. novels and there were too many sort of buttons of political correctness being pressed for my liking. But it is a great achievement. And as you say, it's been delayed for over a year mm. because of the pandemic. It was ready to roll, I think, just before the pandemic finally struck. And it is seen as a way of attempting to get people off their sofas watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and the BBC iPlayer, which we should say also has some great stuff these days, and into the studios, into the cinemas for that full-on Coca-Cola slurping, popcorn munching experience of being in a big wide seat in a cinema with all-around sound. And I think... It is an all-around sound kind of film. It is a big cinema film. You do feel immersed in it and the time does fly. And so I would recommend that people go and see it. But I think some real Bond aficionados, some real experts will find it a bit too much. I think that given we live in this time of incredibly sort of tedious gender identity politics, I mean, say what you like about James Bond Halligan. He hasn't got a cervix, has he? Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic, sometimes funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming in. They really are bright spots in our week. Here's one from Charlotte, a mum. A well-known boarding school, says Charlotte, has taken the decision to lock down an entire house of 50 boys because they've had a spike in positive lateral flow tests. None have yet been confirmed by PCR. My son is now confined to his room for 48 hours, including eating meals there with the opportunity to only go out into the garden for short periods. He's had COVID, dutifully had one vaccination against my advice, and he has no symptoms. Is this a proportionate response to a virus that barely affects children? The fear-mongering perpetuated by government and the media trickles down through ordinary life and continues unabated. At this rate, my son's already too long, two-week half-term will morph into three. He is, of course, extremely lucky. But the impact on mental well-being is immense, not to mention the lost learning. Please, please highlight what is going on. These institutions seem accountable to no one, least of all the children they purport to serve. Planet Normal is one of the few places on Earth it's possible to hear discussion of the mad decisions to, quote, keep people safe. Hugest thanks to you and Liam for everything you do. It's not easy constantly wading upstream against the tide. You are not only our rocket of good sense, but our ballast in these very stormy seas. Thank you for that, Charlotte. And I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you. Let children and all young people get back to normal as soon as possible. Now, we're in for a bit of castigation here. Are you ready for this? <clears throat> this is from John. I was going to write in before the last episode and now I feel more determined to communicate with yourselves. I'm beginning to think I'm listening to an anti-government podcast, which is forever moaning and groaning. I don't think I've missed a single episode of Planet Normal and up until recently have enjoyed every single one and have agreed with your sentiments regarding COVID, NHS, GPs and government. However, more recently, I feel all I've been listening to is continuing moaning, groaning and sarcasm about the government and Boris in particular. This last episode was awful. Don't you get it that Boris's speech was intended to rally the troops? Not supposed to be a verbal manifesto. Don't you realise that most of the country don't listen to party conferences anyway? To end the episode, every single letter you read out was anti-Boris. 
Can you tell me that you didn't receive a single letter in support of Boris? Come on. Can you at least have one episode where you're not so pessimistic and rubbishing everything Boris has done? It's easy to criticise, but how about a bit of positivity for change? I will listen in hope. Regards, John. Now, Liam, I want to say to John, as the young say, John, my bad. Normally, I'm very thorough. Liam will tell you I'm very thorough getting the emails together, trying to make them as balanced and as interesting as possible. I was in a tearing hurry last week. And even as we were reading out the emails, I thought, Velma, these are a bit unbalanced and um, anti-government when we do get lots that are positive. So henceforth, Halligan, we're going to be singing mild paeans of praise to our prime minister and government, which do often do a good job, despite some of uh, the friendly criticism that they get from Planet Normal. Friendly criticism. Here's one from Cassie. Dear Alison and Liam, the government plan for COVID restrictions this autumn and winter includes mandatory COVID status certification in certain settings. I have no issue with the principle behind this, but the remit's too narrow, as it only includes vaccines and antigen testing. The remit should include anyone who can show immunity, whether vaccinated or not. There are now certified and approved methods of testing for cellular immunity, which is as good, if not better, than vaccine-induced immunity. Certification should be for immunity, not just for vaccination. Anyone who's anxious about being vaccinated for whatever reason should be offered a T-cell test and then given the choice of being vaccinated if they aren't already immune. Certainly the younger generation should be offered this. The same should be applied to the so-called boosters, which shouldn't be given unnecessarily. The added bonus of testing large numbers of people, vaccinated and unvaccinated, would be to give a better picture of the levels of immunity throughout the country. This would help with better planning. The government has a consultation paper on this. We should all have our say as individuals, not just leave these consultations to large organisations. Kind regards, Cassie. Well said, Cassie. You know, Halligan, we've had loads of emails in as we come up to the COP26 summit in Glasgow. You know that the worst fact of the week is that the COP26 summit is going to last for two weeks. Two weeks. My God, (laughs) that's a lot of hot air. That will punch a hole in the ozone layer. Think of all the methane, all those canapes consumed. <laughs> Do you know there are up to 25,000 government representatives, media, campaigners expected in poor old Glasgow? I mean, let's not. Anyway, we're going to end with a really lovely email. And this comes from Frank. As a fairly active 84-year-old, I finally celebrated my own freedom this week. Now triple jabbed, my previous concerns about the virus stopped me from returning to normal other than in my local pub until this week. On Saturday, I went with two friends to the Halle at the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester. This involved two train journeys and a restaurant, all things that I have not done for 20 months. We wore masks on the train. It's still a requirement, not that many others bothered. Similarly, we wore masks entering the hall. It was a pleasant return towards normality. Finally, this morning, I went to do my weekly shop in Waitrose, entering as usual with mask in hand to see what the majority were doing. I only wear a mask to avoid upsetting others. However, today, hardly a mask in sight. Even the staff had naked faces. What a wonderful experience to see smiling faces once again. Truly my freedom week. Bravo, Frank, getting out there, showing them how it's done. That's absolutely wonderful. It certainly is. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views Email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. Oh, what a hard one. They're all great, aren't they? I know. I'm going to take a controversial Shirley Ballas, head judge of Strictly decision, and we are going to give two mugs, one to Frank for his week of freedom and one to Charlotte, whose son is locked away in a boarding house. Both absolutely wonderful emails. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Please do. We need as many as we can get. It does really help others to find us so that the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, Leave a comment underneath and I will reply from 11am to noon. It's you, our wonderful Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast. 
We learn so much from you and we do love to be in touch. Talking of being in touch, you're doing an event at The Telegraph, aren't you, Alison, with Tim Stanley? Do you want to quickly tell us about that? Yeah, very quickly. It's uh, tonight, Thursday. All the tickets are sold out. It's a bit exciting. I'm actually, I'm at, well, I'm not even going to bother you, Liam, with the fact I've got to wear a pair of tights and shoes. It's going to be a bit controversial after about 18 months of slacking around in my leggings. So You can keep uh, your slippers in your handbag, darling. I, will, I, will, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear my booties for the way home. Yes, I'm going to be interviewing the marvellous Tim Stanley, formerly a co-host on the Planet Normal Rocket. Tim's written a terrific book called Whatever Happened to Tradition. So you can join us, I believe, online via Zoom. So just Google Tim Stanley Telegraph interview with Alison Pearson and hopefully you can join us and ask some nice, kind, softball questions. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.